Hello and welcome back to the Clerkship Success Series, part of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast, tailored towards medical students and other learners. My name is Charlie Zhao, and I'm here to interrupt our regular programming where we go through common neurological chief complaints to discuss a very important topic in neurology, neuroimaging. Now, if that term scares you or gives you stabbing chest pains, don't worry. We have with us uh, Dr. Mariam Eboyan, Assistant Professor of Neuroradiology here at Yale to guide us. So good morning, Dr. Eboyan. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. Thank you for being here. So our learning goals for today are to go through the principles and some heuristics for reading CT head, CT angiogram, and MRI head and spine. We want to go through the key highlights and the key high points and the must-know conditions to watch out for and some tips to read these images. Now, before we begin, I want to address uh, the first question on our agenda, uh, which is sometimes, you know, at a place like Yale, you have imaging widely available. And some students would think that maybe the neurology exam is redundant in this case, because why would you need to, to do an exam to localize a lesion when you can just get imaging? So as a neuroradiologist, what is your thoughts on the importance of the, the history and the exam and correlating with the imaging findings? Thank you for asking this question, because it's a very important question. Having uh, spent a lot of time in neurology during my medical school time, I am a strong believer on how critical neurologic exam is and how critical clinical history is for our diagnosis of patients. Imaging doesn't give you all answers. Imaging is really narrow, really does narrowing down of your a differential diagnosis. And a lot of times I spend, when I don't have this information, I spend a very long time digging through Epic and trying to find the neurologic exam sections of the, your notes and, you know, try to see where the abnormality is. <laughs> so right, right. Um, this information is critical uh, for you to provide for us. Got it. Thank you. So for this podcast episode, what I thought we'd do is to go through the different imaging modalities, starting with CT and then moving on to MRI the second half. So starting with CT, let's talk about the CT head. So how does the CT head work, first of all? Sure. So CT is a very rapid exam that's commonly used in acute imaging, and it uses radiation. Um, it uses x-rays in the 3D format to really try to get an image of what's going on inside of the head. And it's an excellent modality for using acute imaging because it's super fast. And if your patient has ultimate mental status, you'll be able to get a scan fairly quickly and truly figure out what's going on if it's like a major acute problem. Great. And how would you interpret a CT, a CT image? On CT, you can look at overall anatomic analysis of the brain, and you can delineate gray matter from white matter. You can look at the ventricles. You can look at symmetry of the brain. It's really great for gross parenchymal abnormalities, bleeds, uh, and fractures. Great. And of course, uh, as we learn in medical school, on the CT a bright signal means that something is hyperdense and a darker signal means something is hypodense. Now, what about some disadvantages of CT when compared to the MRI? MRI is much better at detailed parenchymal analysis that CT just cannot do, but MRI is much longer. And, you know, for patients in acute state, uh, you would have to sedate them to get an MRI. So we use these modalities interchangeably depending on patient presentation, what, what you're thinking inter from your neurological exam. So sometimes in CT, of course, 
we use contrast and it's a form of iodinated contrast. And there are some must know conditions for medical students uh, when you want to avoid this contrast. And what would those conditions be? Yeah, so it's actually, you'll deal with this a lot on the wards. So uh, in patients with renal failure, that, that we're really careful with contrast, and also patients with history of allergic reactions to contrast, we're very careful. And if they have allergic reaction to contrast, there's a couple of different protocols for pretreatment of patients, and some of them can actually last 12 hours. So if you're rotating uh, through your rotations and you want to order a CT with contrast, you may actually have to plan 12 hours ahead. And sometimes you'll order a contrast enhanced scan and the patient has a renal acute renal failure. And you may want to discuss with the radiologist, can we get the information that we need from a non-contrast scan? Is there another modality we can use? Or do we really need contrast? And if we do, then you would have to manage the, manage the patient and make sure that they don't go into renal failure or at least follow up uh, in terms of renal function. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk about pathologies. Uh, on CT head, there are a variety of pathologies that you guys are able to see. Now for medical students, what are maybe the top few pathologies that they should be able to detect uh, on their rotations? I uh, had this amazing teacher in my radiology residence. She's the program director for, for our residency. And she used to say, I want you to comment on three H's on your CT head. So all my impressions now have the three H's and every one of my students have the three H's. So uh, I want you to detect hemorrhage, hydrocephalus, and herniation. Those are the three things that always should be in your impression for a CT head. Now, another uh, diagnosis that you need to be looking for on CT head is whether there's ischemia. So that's the fourth thing that um, I've added into my practice to make sure that it's in my impression. So let's go over those three H's just a little bit. And first of all, you said hemorrhage was the first H, right? So how would hemorrhage appear on CT head? Yeah, it will be very dense. It will be very, uh, it will be a very white signal. So hyperdense is the word that I always use. And we, in CT, we use Hounsfield units. So it will be very high Hounsfield units, but it will be less than bone. Bone is very bright. So you can compare to the calvarium surrounding the brain parenchyma. So if you see a bright spot in the brain parenchyma on CT head, that's hemorrhage. Now you can have different types of hemorrhage. It can be intraparenchymal hemorrhage, but it could also be uh, subdural hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage or intraventricular hemorrhage. So Subdural hemorrhage will have kind of like a concave shape uh, along the hemisphere, uh, and it will it can actually have different densities because they can be chronic or acute or acute on chronic. We'll also talk about epidural hemorrhage, where it can have that lens shape appearance with like a very focused hemorrhage that's not crossing the um, sutures. Subarachnoid hemorrhage will actually will be diffusely hyperdense in the cisterns and in the sulci. In this area of circle of Willis, it will actually look like a little spider that uh, hyperdense. And then intraventricular hemorrhage, you'll see them layering in the occipital horns of the lateral ventricles. So think about a human head as sort of a, like a cup. You know, the patient is lying on their back in the CT scanner and you'll have the fluid levels 
in areas that are dependent. So interpeduncular cistern, occipital horns of the lateral ventricles, that's where you'll find traces of hemorrhage that if it's a very small amount of hemorrhage. Uh, but it's e- really easy to miss them if you're not looking specifically for them. That's a very interesting analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the uh, the other aspect of hemorrhages, besides the location that you've already alluded to, you've already talked about, uh, you also alluded to timing because the appearance does change. In acute setting, you said it's going to be hyperdense, but not as dense as bone. Uh, what is a rough timeline for when that becomes isodense and then becomes hypodense? If the hemorrhage occurred months ago, uh, you will no longer see it. It will be very hypodense. Mm-hmm. If it's kind of like in an intermediate stage between a week and months, it will be kind of like uh, it will have a gray appearance uh, of different density of gray. Um, so you would think that. So basically, over time, you have your hyperdense hemorrhage, and over time, it just decreases in in density. It becomes uh, less Hounsfield units until you no longer see it and becomes the same as CSF level. So if you see like a subdural hematoma that's along the hemisphere of the brain that has areas of gray, areas of white, and areas of black, you basically have a mix of acute, subacute, and chronic. All right. So that covers uh, hemorrhage cases. And how would uh, hydrocephalus appear? So for hydrocephalus, it's um, it's basically enlargement of the ventricles due to obstruction. What you're looking for, first of all, it, where the obstruction is. Is it at a level of third ventricle, fourth ventricle, or is it at the level of arachnoid granulations? So if there is an obstruction in the posterior fossa due to a mass, you will have enlargement of the third ventricle and the lateral ventricles. That is very dangerous. You really need to make sure you notify um, neurosurgery immediately. You can also have obstruction at different levels. You can have obstruction at aqueduct of sylvius, at third ventricle. And depending on where the obstruction is, the ventricles will be dilated in those areas. So if you have obstruction at aqueduct of sylvius, the fourth ventricle will be small and the lateral ventricles and the third ventricle will be very large. In the case of patients who has his, who had history of meningitis or even subarachnoid hemorrhage, they can clog up the arachnoid granulations. So all of the ventricles will enlarge. <laughs> um, and usually what we do, we will compare hydrocephalus over multiple uh, time points. And we'll, we have software that allows us to overlay the image with the prior and we can even detect changes in a ventricle size that's millimeters in dimension. So it's a very nice tool that we have to compare the ventricles, and it really uh, it really helps in evaluation of hydrocephalus. I think a nice analogy for you know prior hemorrhage or meningitis that clogs up, so to speak, the erectile granulations is like a clogged drain, right? Where the CSF just has trouble kind of flowing out, but it's not exactly obstructed; it's just clogged. Yes, yes. Now, the last H that you talked about was herniation. And herniation can appear differently depending on what type of herniation. But what are some radiographic signs on a CT that you want to look out for? So there's a couple of different types of herniation. You know, the common one is cerebellar tonsillar herniation. So you really look at the frame and magnum and see if the cerebellar tonsils are protruding down. If they are, I immediately, I literally pick up the phone and call the neurosurgery service. There's subfalcine herniation. So you have one side of the brain herniating to the other side. And that can cause damage to the anterior cerebral arteries. 
there's the uncle herniation. So if you have a mass in the hemisphere of the brain that's causing mass effect and it will cause effacement of the supracellular cistern, that, that's something you really want to call immediately because you can have a blown you, you'll have you can have blown people and it can really cause significant morbidity and mortality. There's also a very interesting herniation that is sometimes difficult to diagnose. It's the upward herniation. So if there's a mass in the posterior fossa and the cerebellum and vermis herniates up, that is a little difficult to identify as a medical student and requires looking at a couple of images, but it really is dependent on looking at effacement of a quadrigeminal plate cistern. I think you mentioned two cisterns. One is a supracellular cistern, and that looks a bit like the, a pentagon, right, shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the quadrigeminal cistern that you mentioned, I think it's at, at around the level of the midbrain. You'll yes. see a, a yeah. smiley face. Yes. And that's, the, that's a nice heuristic. And of course, we suggest listeners to go and take a look at these images and see if you can find the pentagon and see if you can find the smiley face. Yes, you don't want to lose the pentagon or the smiley face. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. And uh, we talked a bit about infarcts, uh, your last of, of the four things that you want to look out for on CT. Mm-hmm. And what are some classic signs of large infarcts that you want medical students to be aware of? Yeah, so we definitely want to make sure that you're able to detect MCA infarcts. So you want to look at dense MCA artery sign. Uh, so it literally, there's a clot in the artery and the clot is hyperdense. So if you see in the region of the middle cerebral artery that it looks hyperdense and the other side looks uh, different, that's really concerning. That could be a clot and you need a CT angiogram to further evaluate. And the other thing is you're going to look for changes in gray-white matter differentiation and look at the gray-white ribbon and see if they blend together or they're separate. Also look at the insula and see if the insula ribbon blends, disappears or is still present. And then also look at basal ganglia. Can you identify caudate, putamen, globus pallidus? Can you, can you really, thalamus, can you see this? Can you see the internal capsule? If you can, then probably basal ganglia are not involved. But if, if they're starting to gray together, then they are involved. And in this position, in this situation, symmetry is your friend. So uh, you really compare one side to the other and try to see if there's any big changes between the two sides and use the uh, contralateral side as a normal. And if you're really stumped, go to another patient's CT head and see how does that one look and then compare it to your patient. Another area of, um, of ischemia that uh, it's very important to pick up is basal artery thrombosis. That will be, the patient will um, have pretty significant altered mental status and pretty much uptunded. The basal artery, artery will look hyperdense, hyper but besides that, you may not see any other findings. So if that is uh, the case, then you need emergency, emergent intervention because that needs to, that clot needs to be removed. So those are the common ones. Then, you know, they have the posterior cerebral artery strokes. Once again, you look for gray-white differentiation in the distribution of the PCA and same thing with ACA strokes. But the, the major ones is really the MCA, the MCA dense artery sign and the gray-white differentiation changes within the MCA territory and then the insula and then the basal ganglia. Perfect, perfect. 
Now, we are wrapping up the section on CT head. Do you have any tips for students on reading CAT, uh, CT head scans? I do recommend to do a rotation in neuroreology to, uh, to really spend some time looking at CT heads. You really need to see 20 CT heads read out uh, with a fellow or attending to start getting the comfort in terms of how to approach them. And also, it's really important to uh, develop pattern for how you approach the study. So develop your own personal search pattern. You know, uh, in my case, I look at the entire brain overall really quickly to see if there's anything that's jumping out at me. Then I look for bleeds. Then I look for strokes. I look at all the locations of the arteries to make sure there's no dense artery sign. I look at all the cisterns. And then I take uh, change the windows to look for subdural hemorrhage. And then I change the windows to look for bone fractures. If I'm looking for a fracture, I will actually look at the skin first and see if there's any kind of bump in the head to see that the patient's or a laceration the, that the patient received an injury. And if I see that there's soft tissue swelling over like the temporal bone, and I see that there's fluid opacification of the mastoid air cells, I'm gonna take a really careful look for temporal bone fracture. So um, just determine, I, I would really recommend to know that there's different windows for reading CT. And we have, together, you and I, we've gone through quite a few cases. Yes. And you keep talking to me about the, the four windows that you kind of went through just now. Uh, the first being the brain and soft tissue window, you know, where you look for the three H's and the, the, the last one, which is ischemia. And then you mentioned the bone window where you look for mats and the fractures. And just now what you mentioned, looking for bruises along with fractures. And then there's a subdural window to look for tiny subdurals, like less than one millimeter. Mm -hmm. um, and you know those ones again might miss on the brain and soft tissue windows. And lastly, there's also here a stroke window, or they call it a narrow window, where you look for any evidence of infarct. Is that a, is that a fair fair summary? It is a fantastic summary. All right. So before we move on to the CTA, let's quickly summarize what we've learned about the CT head. We know that it's a quick and sensitive test for blood and bone fractures, so it's excellent for an acute setting. We talked about how to read the CT heads. Dense equals bright, less dense, you get dark. And look how to look through a CT head, developing your own method to do it looking through uh, four different windows, brain, bone, subdural, and narrow window. Uh, the four things that medical students should look out for are hemorrhage, herniation, hydrocephalus, and any large infarcts. So now we are looking at the CT angiogram. Before we talk about how to read and all those conditions, I'm going to start with a very basic question, but I've always been very confused by this. So when people say CT angiogram versus CT with contrast, what is the difference? Yeah, so um, CT angiogram, you're injecting the contrast and you're imaging right away. So you only see the arteries, you don't see the veins yet. That is a great way to delineate the lumen of the arteries and to see if there's vessel occlusion, if there's changes in, in the shape of the vessel, so like vasculitis, um, or you can look at, you can find dissections this way. So it's, you're really looking at the lumen of the artery and you're looking at a very early, right after injection of the contrast. Now, if you let the contrast go through uh, the arterial phase and it starts entering into the venous phase, you're starting to opacify the veins 
that's the delayed scan and that's your post contrast CT head. Um, so for that one, you're, you're, you're not going to see the arteries that well because they're right next to veins. So they will all kind of blend in together. But what you'll see is parenchymal changes very well. You'll see the venous sinuses very well. So it's a good way to look at venous sinus thrombosis too. If there's a parenchymal enhancing tumor, you'll be able to see that or soft tissue enhancing tumors, like what if there's a base of tongue cancer that is on your CT head? That So think about it as timing. CTA really early, CT post-contrast delayed. Perfect. And what are some most common conditions for which the CTA is obtained? The biggest uh, reasons we use CTAs in, in the setting of a stroke. Uh, when there's a suspicion for stroke, CTA is the first study that's being ordered. And it's really good at detecting large vessel occlusions and even small vessel occlusions. Uh, we can see M2, M3 branches occlusions very easily. Another really good indication is carotid dissection or vertebral artery dissection. Um, those are excellent to evaluate on CT angiogram. TIAs, uh, you know, if you're suspecting stroke and patient has re- uh, the symptoms have gone away, so th- that's a really good indication for CTA. Maybe they have pretty significant stenosis and they're throwing emboli. So you want to diagnose that. And the other one is um, is aneurysm detection. So in, in patients who have hemorrhage and also in patients who, you know, they're, you're worried for an aneurysm, that's a really great way to detect it because it gives you a really nice anatomy of the vessels in the brain and in the neck. Great. And uh, you mentioned large vessel occlusions. Can you quickly remind us uh, what are these large vessels referring to? Yeah, sure. So the common um, vessels that are occluded are the internal carotid arteries. The other vessels that are commonly included are middle cerebral arteries. And then after that, it's like the ACA, the PCA, if you're thinking about circular willis. The basilar, the vertebral arteries and the basilar artery also can be occluded. So you definitely want to look for that. So if you have a case like we discussed basilar thrombosis, if you see it on CT, a hyperdense basilar and your patient's obtunded, you'll get the CTA and you'll see a basilar occlusion in those cases. So literally they just stop flowing. It's like the contrast gets to the clot and stops. So uh, yeah. I know CTA is a relatively advanced study, so it might be difficult for medical students to interpret, but do you have any tips to get students started before they start interpreting CTAs on their own? First of all, take a good look at Netter and get a good understanding of the of the anatomy. So you want to know the common carotid artery, the internal carotid artery, the external carotid artery, the and the circular willis uh, on like the back of your hand. And then when you open the CTA, open the CTA window to arterial contrast so you're able to see the arteries and literally just follow the vessels. So start with one side. So say start with the right common carotid artery, go up all the way to the tip of the MCA and ACA, and then go down the left (laughs) uh, side on the same path and make sure you are able to see every millimeter of that artery. Because if you skip a few millimeters or scroll too fast, you may miss a dissection or you may miss a luminal abnormality. And then go up on the right vertebral artery all the way to the tip and then go down on the left vertebral artery all the way down. 
And that's how I would start. But once again, I would really, I have this 20 study rule. Uh, you really need to go through about 20 studies to truly start understanding them. So if you want to do this yourself, uh, that's great. Another way is to pair up with a neuroradiology fellow or an attending and to just kind of start going through those studies. So that's that's excellent. Thank you, Dr. Abowen. And, and so we, for the CTA section, we talked about well, there's a brief section, but we talked about the difference between CTA and CT uh, post-contrast. We talked about the few big things to look for in CTA, which are uh, strokes, uh, mostly large vessel occlusions. And also, we didn't mention, but carotid and vertebral dissections. Also, uh, so TIA evaluation and aneurysms. These are all very good things to uh, look for when you are ordering a CTA. So I want to touch briefly on CT perfusion. I know medical students aren't necessarily expected to read perfusion scans, but I thought it would be knowing it'd be worth knowing uh, what it is and what it's used for. Yeah, so perfusion is very good for in the evaluation of stroke, OCT perfusion, and it's really good at de delineating the core of the infarct from the penumbra region that's tissue at risk. Each hospital will have their own software that does perfusion analysis. And it's basically you um, do dynamic scan uh, and you follow the contrast as it goes through the tissue with multiple images. And then those images are reconstructed and you basically get perfusion images within the brain. Great. And of course, the ratio between the penumbra and the infrared core would determine if the patient would benefit from reperfusion therapy, right? That's how yeah. much of the tissue can be saved. Exactly, exactly. Now let's move on to MRI. So let's talk about some of the more common sequences we use in urology uh, for medical students, which is T1, T2, flare, DWI, ADC, and SWI. So starting with T1, how do we know that we're looking at a T1 sequence? So when you're thinking about T1-weighted uh, sequence, the common things um, you want to see is that the gray matter is dark, the white matter is bright, and the CSF is dark. The other thing about T1 is that fat is usually bright unless the sequence was done with fat suppression. Different stages of blood can also be T1 bright. And what is T1 imaging used best used for? So T1 imaging is really good for general anatomy evaluation. Also, it's really good for looking at contrast enhancements. So we'll do T1 pre-contrast and post-contrast. So those are the major indications that I would think about in, at this stage, but there's others. <laughs> of course. <laughs> now on the topic of contrast, this contrast is obviously different from the one used in CT. Uh, can you just briefly tell us what is the difference? So contrast in, in MRI is gadolinium. The one thing about gadolinium, it's supposedly not allergenic. We still have patients with gadolinium contrast allergy. They're, they're supposedly not supposed to have it, <laughs> but it's much less common than iodine allergy. Basically, gadolinium contrast is really good for evaluation of breakage and blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. So if the vessels have blood-brain barrier breakdown, the gadolinium will leak out. And that's seen in brain tumors, inflammation, infection. So you're able to see what we call contrast enhancement 
onsi when weighted imaging. But you always want to compare to pre-contrast imaging because there's a lot of pathologies that will have intrinsic T1 <laughs> signals. So right, right. Um, that's why we always do pre and post. And of course, there are lots of nuances with contrast enhancement patterns. You know, on the wards, you hear about things like ring enhancement, periventricular enhancements, meningeal enhancements. So all of these will be nuances, but the principles uh, of contrast enhancement is that it indicates a breakdown in the blood-brain barrier, and the three most common entities, as you mentioned, are inflammation, infection, and malignancy. All right, so that kind of wraps up our, our T1-weighted imaging. Now let's talk about T2 and flare. So first of all, for medical students, how do we tell that we're looking at a T2 image or flare image? Yeah, so with T2 compared to flare, T2 will have bright CSF and flare specifically suppresses the CSF. It will have dark CSF. So that's how you can compare them. The white matter on T2 and flare will be dark gray and the cortex will be light gray. So basically T2 and flare are pretty much the same sequence. The only thing, the only difference is you suppress the CSF on flare and that allows you to see the white matter abnormalities better. Great. And what are the general pathologic changes that you look for on a T2 or flare image? Flare is, is really great for evaluation for white matter abnormalities. It's really great for um, evaluation of tumors um, in terms of its infiltrative spread, inflammation, stroke. Uh, all of that is very easily seen on flare. T2, you'll be able to see cystic changes, fluid fluid levels. It's great for evaluation of ventricles because you'll be able to see the CSF being bright. Makes sense. And, and the way I learned it was that for T2 and flare, you're looking for any, any active lesions will show up on these sequences uh, and also scars from old lesions. Mm -hmm. And uh, along with that, we have edema and uh, cysts. Yes. So that is that a kind of yes. like a nice summary of what we can see on T2 yes. and flare? Yes, great. it's perfect. A quick aside on the topic of edema. I've heard of the term cytotoxic edema versus vasogenic. Now, how do they appear on uh, T2 flare? Yeah, so with cytotoxic edema, you're thinking things like stroke, um, where the gray-white junction will be disrupted. And both edemas can cause mass effect, but the cytotoxic edema will, will see pretty significant abnormalities. With vasogenic edema, you'll see around things like brain tumors where there's mass effect and it's causing the edema. And that edema has this like finger-like approach because it spares the gray-white, unless there's tumor invading the gray-white. That's kind of how I would approach it. Okay. So talking about DWI, diffusion-weighted imaging, and ADC, apparent diffusion coefficients, first of all, what are the principles behind them? What do they measure? DWI, it's one of the most important sequences that we do and is uh, usually the first sequence that we do in patients. And actually, it, if you ever need one sequence, uh, if you're ever only able to do one sequence in your patient, this is the sequence that you should do. So DWI looks at diffusion of water and whether there's restricted diffusion or not of water molecules. And what you get with DWI, you get a sequence that's called the poor man's T2, which is B0 sequence. Basically, that's just a not so great T2-weighted image, and you can look for any kind of abnormalities. And then on diffusion sequence, you can easily find things like strokes or hypercellular tumors or anything that can cause 
or abscesses, anything that can cause restriction of water of water movement. ADC map is used as a troubleshooting sequence. So if you have a abnormality in DWI that's like a bright focus, it can be either due to an acute stroke or old stroke. If it's an acute stroke, it will have an associated low ADC values. But if it's a chronic stroke, like a white matter abnormality, it will have high ADC values. And that's, we call that tissue shine through. So ADC is a really good sequence, but it's really used for troubleshooting. You had quite a few key points I wanted to highlight in what you just said, which is looking at uh, DWI, you're really looking for fluid restriction. It will, it will appear bright on DWI and dark on ADC if it's an acute infarct, for example, when you have fluid restriction. Yeah. Whereas when later on in chronic infarcts, uh, or not chronic, but rather later on in the course of infarcts, you'll have the ADC becoming normal and the DWI still being bright, and that you'll call uh, T2 shine through. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, and the, the few pathologies that you want to see on DWI that you mentioned, uh, the acute infarcts, uh, abscesses, and hypercellular tumors. Um, there's also the myelination on our list yep. Yep. Um, that medical students should know. Yes. And since we're on a topic of infarcts, now we talked about several ways they can look at infarcts, uh, DWI, ADC, and also flare. So how do these three images change uh, relative to the time course of the infarct? Now let's just go with some general uh, estimates of the time course, because obviously it would vary from patient to patient. We can um, differentiate stro like uh, strokes in terms of hyperacute, acute, subacute, and chronic. And the very first changes you see is on DWI. After that, you'll see changes on flare. And after that, you can actually see changes on uh, contrast enhancement. Usually the DWI changes resolve within a week. So ADC becomes normalized within a week. Flare can appear pretty quickly and it just usually stays. It may get less intense over time. And then post-contrast will appear later in the course, but it will resolve over time. So a chronic uh, stroke will actually have loss of parenchymal volume. So you'll basically have encephalomalacia in that area. But those are the general principles. There's really good tables that are available for to follow and with specific to the day, to the hour of what changes when. I would refer to those. And we will have one of these tables in our show notes. Yes. Perfect. So we've talked about a few sequences now, and I want to briefly just touch on SWI, which stands for Susceptibility Weighted Imaging. Susceptibility Weighted Imaging is really excellent method on MR to evaluate for intracranial bleeding. With CT, we can see large bleeds, but with SWI, we can actually see tiny uh, bleeds. Um, such as in cases where you have radiation-induced damage and patients will have tiny microbleeds or amyloid angiopathy, they'll have tiny microbleeds that are not seen in any other sequences. It's also a good way to see calcification and you can have advanced processing of susceptibility-weighted imaging to differentiate blood from calcium. So that's also really helpful. All right, and that wraps up our general MRI discussion. I do want to touch a little bit on MRA and MRV before we move on, because I've always been confused by MRA, MRV, and compared to MRI with contrast. So can you give me a quick rundown, a simplified version, if you can, uh, of the difference in terms of technique between MRA, MRV, and uh, MRI with contrast? Of course, of course. 
MR angiogram, MRA, is a commonly used test for patients in non-acute settings. So if you have a patient who has an aneurysm and you want to follow their aneurysm or you want to screen a patient for aneurysms. So you will do time of flight MR angiogram, which doesn't require contrast. So that's a really good way of doing it. Also, it's um, very good to look at vascular malformations. That's another way of looking at it. And the biggest difference in terms of these two modalities, uh, the modalities such as CTA uh, of the head and MRA is really whether you use contrast or not and whether you use CT or not. So with MRA, you have no radiation exposure and no contrast, which is really, really helpful. And you, it provides you really good evaluation of the, of the circle of Willis and, and the carotids. For MR venogram, we will actually do a time of flight, which is non-contrast, and also post-contrast imaging. And that is used for venous sinus thrombosis. So for that one, um, you will want to give contrast because venous thrombosis can sometimes be difficult to localize, and there could be flow artifacts that non-contrast techniques can be of an issue. Uh, you can also look uh, for venous sinus thrombosis with CT venogram. So that's a it's basically your post-contrast CT of the brain. Uh, so it's a delayed imaging of the brain with uh, after iodinated contrast. But the best way to really look for thrombus is MRV. All right. So that was a little bit of an aside for MRA and MRV, because I know students will see you on awards and hopefully they won't get too confused by it. Uh, if well, my understanding is correct from what you just said, uh, MRA is when you you might want to obtain for following up on aneurysms or screening for aneurysms in general, any non-acute uh, angiographic needs. And the technique in here is called time of flight, and you don't necessarily need a contrast to be able to see the arteries in this case. So it's uh, that's the advantage of MRA. MRV, uh, you mentioned the main condition that we look for is venous thrombosis, and you obtain both time of flight imaging and also uh, MRV with contrast imaging, which makes it a little bit similar to MRI with contrast because there's contrast in both of these cases. Now, the last topic that I want to talk about is MRI spine. Now, I know that you have a, a strong opinion on on how to order MRI spine. And I thought it might be interesting to share with medical students your tips on uh, what to order and, and why it matters. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, thank you. So um, first, before you order MRI spine, you really have to uh, think about why you're getting that. If you are in the emergency room and you have a patient that you're worried about uh, cord compression, you want a test that's fast and gives you the results uh, that you need. So for that one, you want to order an acute total MR spine uh, protocol, which really just looks at the canal and, uh, and evaluates whether there's any cord compression. And the best protocol for that is sagittal T2 of the total spine. And you can also do additional sequence called STIR, which will evaluate for soft tissue abnormalities, such as like any kind of bruising that's happening that can alert you to a region of trauma. So if you do SAG T2, it's a fairly fast exam and it tells you if there's cord compression or not. Now, in the other indication, if you're trying to say, evaluate a patient who has chronic neck pain and the neck uh, pain is starting to get debilitating and they're being evaluated for, uh, you know, eventual management of this neck pain because they can't, they just can't live with it anymore. 
you want to get a dedicated MRI of the cervical spine. You don't want to order thoracic and lumbar spine just because the patient already has an appointment for the cervical spine. Telling us where to look is really important because if we don't know what we're looking for, the patient can be in a scanner for a very long time, which is over an hour. At that point, um, up at about 25, 30 minutes, patients start moving and start getting frustrated. The moment they start moving, the images, image quality degrades significantly. So don't try to add on studies just because patients going down for a study. If you're if your indication that you really need a thorough evaluation of the lumbar spine, don't add on T and, uh, and, and C spine to it. Focus on the lumbar spine and then bring the patient later the another day or um, another week and we'll do the evaluation of the other studies. It's much better to get a good diagnostic study right away than get all of the studies in one day and none of them be useful. All right, that, so that makes a lot of sense. And I think it would be great for medical students to take note of that when they go into the wards. Uh, lastly, how would you advise medical students approach reading MRI spine? Yes. Um, so the very important thing for you to learn in medical school is to evaluate for cord compression. Definitely, I would learn the anatomy of the vertebral bodies and um, posterior elements, and also start looking at subcutaneous soft tissues and paraspinal muscles, and be able to see all around the vertebral body. So uh, once you understand where the spinal canal is and where the cord is, you wanna be able to identify a T2-weighted sequence so that you could see that CSF surrounds the spinal cord and be able to see where the compression is. It's, it's actually not that difficult to see compression after you've seen one. The next thing you wanna be able to identify if there's compression, is there abnormal signal within the cord? Um, so T2 hyperintense signal within the cord. And the way to see it is you look at the rest of the cord that's not compressed and you see the intensity on that one and look at where the compression is and ask yourself, is this different from the rest of the normal cord? And if it is, then it's, there's probably abnormal signal. And if there is abnormal cord signal, then it uh, may require different management uh, in your patient. Now, the other thing that I would like um, to make sure that the medical students know is how osteomyelitis discitis looks like in adults. So you want to be able to see abnormal edema and enhancement in the vertebral bodies and the disc. And you want to be able to see if, um, if that extends into the spinal canal and if that's causing cord, cord compression in that area as well. And also compression fractures. That's another one that's really important. MRI is not very good for fractures, but it is very good for bony edema. So if on uh, stir sequences or uh, T2-weighted sequences with um, fat suppression, you see abnormal signal in um, vertebral body, such as which would indicate edema, you want to really go back to the CT and look very carefully to make sure that there's no bone fracture. So those are the things that I would focus on. More advanced topics is metastases within the spine. And those are a little difficult and take a while to learn. So maybe you can do this um, either as a focused project or in your residency, if that's something that's important. Great. All right. So, so the three conditions that you mentioned, cord compression, osteomyelitis, discitis, and <clears throat> um, fracture, right? 
Yes, fracture bony edema. Yes. All right, so that wraps up our episode on neuroimaging with Dr. Abuyan. So thank you, Dr. Abuyan, for spending your time with us today, and I hope our listeners got a lot of out of our discussion. Thank you so much. It, it was a pleasure, and always feel welcome to stop by the reading room or call us. And we will be more than happy to go over it.、Um, sometimes when you call us, it's a、uh, it's not as easy to get us to talk、uh, on the phone, but、uh, we're there and just be like, hey, I'm a medical student. I'm interested in learning about this. Can you show me where the osteomyelitis discitis is? Can you describe this to me? And we'll show it to you. And we're more than happy to teach you this. 